Father, again, we're thankful that you have provided your word, that your word is truth, that it defines all existence and is our absolute authority. And we ask that your Holy Spirit illuminate our hearts to that authority and to the content of your word, that we may know you in an ever deeper way. We ask this through the Savior's name. Amen. Once again, to, uh, we want to uh, get into the prophets tonight a little bit more. Um, last time we had uh, some people assigned to read a section, and we'll go try to get back to that point. But to kind of warm up and get into the uh, shape of things here, the, pr- the prophets are God's spokesmen and historians. And they operated in Israel beginning uh, really with Moses because Moses technically was the first prophet. And we don't read much about them, Mount Sinai, the conquest and settlement, but they're obviously present by this time, by the rise and the reign of David. So we're talking from the Exodus, 1400, 1440 B.C., down to David, 1000 B.C., for so for three or four centuries, uh, the prophets had become pretty numerous. And they had become a major function in the nation. Like I said, if you want to think of them, think of them as spokesmen for God and historians for God. And the reason they're historians for God is because God entered into a contractual agreement with the nation and there had to be historic monitors to performance. A contract always defines behavior over a time interval. And these contracts were made to, um, to, to monitor man's behavior and God's behavior. And what we want to do is, again, review the process spiritually that's happening. The idea of the prophets is to bring the nation into a relationship with God and to keep it in a relationship with God. And when the nation is out of fellowship and disobedient, particularly when it's been out of fellowship and disobedient for a time period, they can't just start with conviction of sin. It's not that simple because sin can't be defined if our picture of God is wrong and incorrect. So the prophets had a bigger job to do, and the job was to show God for who he was through his works in history. So they had to constantly interpret history for the nation, constantly pull the nation back. Who's in charge here? Point to the sovereignty of God. Who is doing the work? Point to the omnipotence of God. Who is the one who is immutably bound to his word? It is God. And so forth, going through all the attributes, his omnipresence, his omniscience, his love, his holiness and justice and so forth. Well, in the notes then, we've, we've mentioned that the prophets worked off of several of the covenants. In the handout tonight, I've built a chart that shows you these covenants. So if you turn to the... Um, Page 47, um, we'll just quick review of the covenant structure. 
the middle three of those five covenants we have talked about. The Abrahamic, the Sinaitic, misspelled, I see, um, and the Davidic. Those are the three covenants that were the authority for the prophets. And the prophets interpreted history in the light of those three covenants. And I keep repeating this and repeating this for the reason that every class I've ever taken in college and university, the guys up there have totally misread. I just wonder sometimes they ever read the Bible. The problem is some of these PhDs, they read a lot of books about the Bible, but they never read the Bible. And they constantly try to throw this stuff out to the students that the prophets were originators. The prophets were people who cried out against the social evils of their time. Yes, they did, but that wasn't their main purpose. Their main purpose was to bring the nation into a relationship with God, or you couldn't define what evil is. You can't talk about social evils unless you have a standard of good and bad. Where do you get the standard from good and bad? It has to come from God. So, those are the three covenants that they worked on, and we've gone over those and repeated ourselves ad nauseum with those three covenants. So, that's the covenantal structure. Now, in the notes where we are, uh, we stopped last time on page 43. What we're looking at is the fact that each one of these, um, these prophets was an individual unto himself. God worked uniquely through each one. And if we characterize the prophetic message, it, has, it, it basically has three themes to it. Whether you're looking at Micah, Jonah, Hosea, Daniel, Zechariah, Zephaniah, Hosea, Haggai, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, whatever prophetic book you're talking about, they generally are, are working these three themes over and over again. The first one we, we've already studied, and that is the theme that Jehovah is in charge of even the pagan nations. So, the, they want, to, want the nation to understand that Jehovah is sovereign, and he is sovereign over the pagans. So while the pagan nations may be ferocious, and the pagan nations may come in and defeat Israel, it must never be forgotten who is behind the pagan nations. God is. Not the pagan gods and the pagan goddesses, but the Jewish God is over the pagan nations. So they constantly make this theme. And this is why when you read these prophetic books, you wonder, well, why do I have all these details and the crying out against Nineveh and the crying out against Moab and the crying out against Edom? I mean, some of these nations don't exist today. Many of them don't exist today. Um, why, why are these little dicky nations, uh, why are they remembered in the scriptures? Why don't we have, you know, the big nations, but why, why these? Because they were big to Israel and they had to have the assurance, even in their carnality, and even in their disobedience, that God was still sovereign. So that's why, no matter what the, the prophetic book is, and you read that theme, you'll see it come up again and again. Okay, the second thing that we're working on right now, their second theme was that Israel has broken covenant. Israel broken the Sinaitic covenant. And the significance of that statement is 
that because they broke the covenant, they don't merit the rule and reign of God anymore. They've, they've, they've kind of cooked their goose here. And that's why now uh, we, we want to return to where we left off on page 43. Um, I'm going to turn to Deuteronomy 32, and if you'll turn there with me, I want to point out some parts in that national anthem of Israel. And then we're going to return, and Warren, if, uh, I'm going to call on you to read Isaiah again, and Mike, if you would read Hosea, and Larry, um, Micah. Um, if you'll, everybody will first turn to Deuteronomy 32. I want you to see the structure. Remember, this was the song that ended the Sinaitic Covenant. It was Moses' farewell to his nation, and he composed a song that was to be sung down through history. It is a song that is remembered in the book of Revelation, the Song of Moses. And in this song, Moses develops a format that will later be used by the prophets. And that format, we said, is a reeve format. And it's R-E-E-V is the way it's pronounced. And the reeve is translated in your Bibles often as, I have a case against thee, O Israel. Uh, or I will... Um, see, some of the translations use um, a dispute. Those are some of the ways the English translations pick this word up, grieve. But I, I mentioned the word to you because it's a technical word and it's important. It's not just a randomly selected noun. This is a, a particular technical term that is being used by the Holy Spirit in these passages of Scripture to signify something very important is going on here. And Moses, in this song, actually has the three parts of the reeve. The first part, second part, and third part we'll look at. The first part is the court procedure, or we, the convocation of the court. And in Deuteronomy 32, the convocation of the court is in verses 1 to 14. And if you have a modern translation, you see they stopped. They put a big split in the text between verse 14 and 15 to section that off. Um, it starts off with a call to the witnesses. And if you just let your eyes go down, verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6... Um, You'll see, for example, verse 10, he found them, him, that is, uh, his people, Jacob, Israel. He found Israel in a desert land in the howling waste of a wilderness. He encircled him, he cared for him, he guarded him as the pupil of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest that hovers over its young, he spread his wings and he caught them. He carried them on his pinions. The Lord alone guided him. There was no foreign god with him. All right, all that is in what tense? Present tense, future tense, or past tense? It's all past tense, see? Because the court is looking at behavior that has occurred. And has this behavior, by the way, has this behavior actually finished occurring when Moses wrote the song? The answer is no, it's still going on. Um, but in verses 1 through 14, 
you have a description of what God has done for the nation. Verses 1 to 14 are all God did this, God did that. Look at, look at the subject of all the action verbs. Every one of those verses, verses 1 to 14, you'll see the emphasis is on God. God, 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 God. Now, what happens in verse 15? Just observe the text. What do you see as you shift from verse 14 to 15 to 16? Who now is the subject of the action verbs? Jerishan grew fat and kicked. You are grown fat. Then he forsook God. Who's, who's the subject? It's the nation, isn't it? So, when the court comes into, um, uh, into session, the witnesses, verses 1, give ear, O heavens, and let me speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. They are the witnesses to the behavior of the covenant. And we believe that in verse 1, where it says, Give ear, O heavens, and let the earth hear, that it's not just the literal ocean, uh, it's just not the literal heavens and the literal earth, it's the beings that occupy, intelligent beings that occupy these areas. In other words, an angelic witness. So there's an angelic witness that's conveyed, and the court procedure in verses 1 to 14 is a depiction of God's faithfulness. So this is the first part. Yahweh is faithful. He has done all these things for his people. Then the second part, in verses 15 through 18, there's a shift. Something is introduced, the subject changes, the action verbs now are no longer describing what God is doing. All the action verbs in verse 15, 16, 17, and 18 are verbs that are describing the action of Israel, the nation. They made him jealous with strange gods. Abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons who were not God, to gods whom they have not known, new gods who came up recently, whom your fathers did not dread. You neglected the rock who begat you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. And that's the accusation. And the second part of a reef proceeding is the indictment. And the indictment will specify what parts of the treaty were broken, what parts of God's law has been violated. And that, verses 15 through 18, means that they have basically the first and great amendment. Thou shalt have none other gods before me. Verse 15, 16, 17, 18 is written to show a violation of the first commandment. And, of course, in the violation of the first commandment, they violated all the other commandments, of course. But the emphasis in verses 15, 16, 17, and 18 is a violation of the first and great commandment. There's the indictment. Then, verses 19, and the next section, on to verse 26, starts spelling out the announcement of the judgment. So, the, in this reeve, the, the suzerain or the great king against the lesser kings in the treaty, he now announces uh, to these people he was in alliance with, he's saying, you violated the treaty and now comes the judgment. So he spells out the sentence. And in verse 19, the Lord saw this and spurned them. Now what's so amazing about this chapter, and this is why the people, the PhDs in the university classrooms always screw up, 
because they can't. Ex they, they see that obviously verses 15 through 18 is describing history that's post-Mosaic. This happened after Moses. Well, how could Moses write know what's going to happen? Well, he couldn't, they think. So therefore, chapter 32 is all fabricated. Chapter 32 was written after the fact. Chapter 32 was written by the prophets who were using it to justify their social crusades. So it's all manufactured. This is whole, all this part of the scripture is manufactured to support the prophetic program when it's exactly the opposite. The prophetic program is substantiated by the scripture. And Moses, under the power of the Holy Spirit, could foresee the future of the nation that he founded. And he wrote its national anthem to be a prophetic theme of its own history down through the centuries. And of course, that's obviously supernatural. And you know, you can't have anything supernatural in the classroom. The Lord saw this and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and daughters. Let's, let's watch the sentence unroll here. Then he said, I will hide my face from them. Now, what we're looking at, folks, is back to this chart that I was trying to show you. See, this is how God works with us. In, in a relationship. He has a relationship with the nation. And here's what it looks like, and this is how the, the Holy Spirit is unfolding how God deals with sin. <clears throat> and so, the indictment of this Reeve proceeding is the way he's doing that. And so, in the imposition of the sentence, verse 20, one of the things that God does is he hides his face. He breaks fellowship. Men break fellowship from him, and he says, okay, I'll lock the door. And you don't have the key. Sorry. So, I hide my face on them. I will see what their end shall be, for they are perverse generations, sons in whom there is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is not God. See the emphasis in the first commandment here? They have made me jealous with what is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. You notice how many social evils are being discussed here? It's theological evil. And the Bible does that. The first commandment is the first commandment for a very first reason. It's transgression of the first commandment that leads to the other things. And we got it all backwards. The way we try to analyze things, we try to start with a social problem and ask ourselves, gee, the social problem, we gotta, how do we solve the social problem? Well, if we're thinking that it's just a social problem, we haven't even defined the problem correctly yet. The problem isn't a social problem ultimately it's a theological problem but because we what we think horizontally we don't bring God into the analysis so we never define what the problem is and that's why we never can solve the problem they have made me jealous they have provoked me to anger so notice the irony in verse 21 so I will make them jealous with those who are not a people I will provoke to them to anger with a foolish nation for a fire is kindled in my anger and burns to the lowest part of hell and consumes the earth with its yield, and sets on fire the foundations of the mountain. I will heap misfortunes upon them, I will use my arrows on them. They shall be wasted by famine, consumed by plague, and bitter destruction. The teeth of beasts I will set upon them, with venom of crawling things of the dust. Outside the sword shall bereave, and inside the terror, both young man and virgin, the nursling with a man of gray hair. I would have said, I will cut them to pieces, I would remove them from the memory of man, and if you'll stop there. Because up to there, it's all Reeve proceeding. Beginning in verse 27, something happens. When something happens, we're going to deal with that. 
But right now, we're not worried about what something happens. We just want to see the, the proceeding. So we go from verses 15 down through um, verse 18 for the indictment. And then we pick up in verse 19 and go to verse 26. That's the Reeve pattern. Now, I want to prove it to you, and we're going to go to where we started last time. So, if we'll come over, um, some of you want to turn to Isaiah, other people turn to Hosea, and other people turn to Micah. Okay? Um, you can turn all three. You've got three hands to stick in the text. Um, or if you're very clever, you can figure out how you can move from one passage to the next by flipping it. Um, what I'm trying to do here is I want you to see the parallel structure occurs in three different prophets. Because I want to convince you that these guys are all in cahoots. That they look different. They're different men ministering the Word of God in a different age to a different audience with a different calling. But behind them stands the unified Spirit of God. So, if you'll, Isaiah is one passage, and Hosea, if you want to get your hands in there, Hosea will be the next passage. Remember, he's after Daniel because Daniel has a hose that's sprayed jello all over the place. Um, Hosea and Micah. Micah occurs right after Jonah. Okay, so it's in Hosea chapter 4. Hold the place there. First part of chapter 4. And then if you can hold that place and look at Micah chapter 6. There's going to be two places in Micah. All right. Um, I'm going to have Warren read just verses 2 and 4 again of Isaiah. And everybody follow and listen with him. Verses 2 through 4 of Isaiah 1. Now, there's a parallel between that and 1 through 14 in Deuteronomy in that you'll notice Isaiah convenes the same courtroom witnesses. The heavens and the earth. Identical phraseology, exactly the same in the Hebrew. The same idea. Now, it's true that in verses 3 and 4 he also brings up the corruption of the people, but those who have studied the structure of Isaiah argue that the real conviction doesn't come until later on in the passage, down verses 5 to 23. Um, we're not going to debate the fine points of the formatting, but notice the parallel. Isaiah did not make this text up. You see where he got it? Isaiah goes back to Moses. He's building on Moses. He's administering the covenant. Now let's turn um, to Hosea chapter um, 4 and just verse 1, Mike, if you read that. Okay. Now, in that case, he's not, Hosea is not invoking that same set of witnesses, the heavens and the earth, but the tip in the text that he has in mind, the reeve, is that word, notice, 
in verse 1 of chapter 4, the Lord has a case. That's the word reeve. The Lord has a controversy. I think some of the King James texts will tra sometimes translate by controversy. Lord has a controversy with it. Well, controversy is an English translation of the Hebrew word for reeve. So the fact that the reeve, that noun, is in the text tells us that Hosea is thinking in terms of a lawsuit here. And yes, he doesn't quite use the same thing, but the idea is there in the text. He sees himself as bringing an announcement of the court, the convening of a court. These guys have watched the nation sin and sin and sin and rebel and rebel and rebel, and the carnality becomes compounded upon compounding upon compounding, and the Holy Spirit is addressing the nation, you've gone far enough. That's it. You have broken my covenant. Just like when the, when the Sinaitic covenant was given, what, you know, they were playing games down the foot of the mountain. And what happened? Remember when Moses came down, what did he do to the tablets on Mount Sinai? He broke them. Is that because he was mad? Well, he might have been mad, but that's not why he broke the tablets. He broke the tablets because it was an official recognition of the breaking of the covenant. We would say he tore up the contract. That's what he was doing when he broke the tablets. So, it was serious business and it marked a point in a relationship. In other words, the relationship had been tolerated. But when the prophets started talking like this, things had reached very serious proportion. Because it meant that if the covenant was broken, what else was broken? All the promises of blessing were broken. So now the nation was on its own. No, no more blessings, no more promises, I'm going to get you out of a military jam. No more promises, I'm going to help you out economically. All those go away if you break the covenant. So the breaking of the covenant is a formal, specific event in Old Testament history. And it carried a momentous conviction of sin. Because it meant basically that God's chosen people were kicked out of his presence. Okay, let's turn over to Micah. And Mary, if you would read um, chapter 6, uh, verses 9. Um, let's see, no, chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Look at the text there that Larry read. Do you notice? You see, he's calling on the mountains here. The heavens aren't there, but learn to see that each prophet is an individual and he uses his own, it's like a musician. They have a theme, but they have their own style. Well, each of these prophets do have their own style. They're not just copycats of each other. There is a variety of between them because they're individual men. But still, can't you see the theme is the same? Notice the text carefully. Plead your case. See? It's a courtroom language. This is all language born of the courtroom. Let the hills hear your voice. Look at verse 2. Listen, mountains, to the indictment of the Lord. And you enduring foundations. The Lord has a controversy. There it is. That's the word reeve. 
So now we've looked at three different prophets and we've seen all three of these guys are pushing the same theme. Now, if you'll come back, well, well let's, since we're already in Micah, uh, let's have Larry read down Micah chapter 6, 9 through 12. This is the answers to the Deuteronomy section on the indictment. Uh, yeah, verses 9 through 12, Larry. Okay, now look at this text. Is he mentioning social evils here? He sure is. So the prophets never saw a tension between the first commandment and the other commandments. What they were doing was tracing the social evils to the fruit of violating the first commandment. In other words, people who rebel against the authority of God are out of control. The out of controlness doesn't come because Ultimately, I'm disobedient to my parents or I'm disobedient to the government authorities or something like that. It ultimately comes because I'm out of control with my conscience before God. That's where the out of controlness starts. And the prophets always bring that conviction back. Now, there's some specific social evils that he does mention here. For example, um, King James' translation is not very clear, but in verse 10, a short measure. Anybody get an idea in verse 11 what, what he's getting at there? Wicked scales deceptive weights. What kind of a social crime do you think he's talking about there? Scales and weights. What was money in that time? Money was metal. It was weighed. Gold and silver and bronze. What the evil is manipulation of the monetary system. Now that strikes home currency manipulation. It's one of the great themes of the prophets. Today you never hear. When have you ever heard a sermon against uh, fiat money, for example, in evangelical Christianity, even in any kind of Christianity? We never hear sermons about the manipulation of the monetary system. It goes on all the time, but we never hear about it. And yet, everybody, when they get in the book of Revelation, wonder, gee, what's Babylon? And they can't figure out what Babylon is when it's obvious in the text what activity of man is Babylon that is cursed in the book of Revelation with. They cannot, she has committed whoredom with the nations. They bought and they sold. It's the international merchants and trading system. So the idea of the wicked scale, what, what commandment, by the way, unless we get too esoteric here, this is theft. Whenever you manipulate the currency, you're thieving. You're a thief. When you have a dollar and you no longer can buy a dollar's worth of goods with that piece of paper, you've been ripped off. Inflation, in other words, inflation in the scripture is a sin. To inflate a currency is to destroy the people's trust. And yet every nation on earth today make inflation a habitual policy. It's official. So, and the economic implications, by the way, if you didn't have inflation, are enormous. The profound effects of this. 
But for our purposes, just understand, in verse 11, the wicked scales and scepter weights primarily are money, but they also carry over to anything else. Now, in many areas, our government is very just in verse 11. Anytime you buy gas and you look at the gas pump when you go there, you'll see there's a seal from the state of Maryland on that gas pump. And it's supposedly calibrated. So when, you, when that thing's going around, oh, gee, it's $10 worth of gas. Um, that you've got $10 worth of gas. That that little sucker isn't in there with an extra gear or something ripping you off, because you'd never know it. Well, that's an example of a weight and a measure in normal business dealings. But again, let's try to think, why do you suppose the prophets attack this sin? I mean, they attacked other things. But why do you attack weights and measures so heavily? Why is this put on a plane with violating the first commandment? The answer, I think, is that every human relationship relies upon standards of truth to conduct business or to conduct any relationship. And if you're going to manipulate those, you have just ruptured trading, relationships. Everything goes down the drain because nobody can trust anybody anymore. You've just destroyed society right there. Yeah, the other sins are there, but this is a critical form of thievery because its net result is distrust and a rupture of human communications. Okay, so that's Micah. Micah's going to attack that theme. Let's turn back to Hosea now, chapter 4, verse 2. Now, here is an indictment again. And uh, Mike, if you just read verse 2. And now this is going on in God's nation. Now, just look at the list of sin here. And we say, ooh, that's God's chosen people. <laughs> yeah, it is. And they have sin natures like everybody else. And that's the behavior of Hebrew Old Testament people that's being attacked in verse 2. Now, sometimes, you know, we have a, I have a friend here in the congregation. He's not here tonight, so I can say. Um, but he had given a Bible to his dad. And his father, I don't know whether his father's a Christian or not, and his father's reading the Bible for the first time in his life, and he says, Wow, look what they did back then. Man, this book's got sex in it, it's got violence, it's got everything. Well, that's right, because it's describing us. It's describing the human race the way it is. The problem with it is that we tend to think that now that we've got the truth of the scriptures is that, gee, we've we got a lot of violence and some of the X-rated material in here. Well, that's right. But that why it's here isn't the same reason it's in pagan literature. The difference is that the X-rated material is in this book deliberately underneath the authority of God. See, that's the difference between pornography and truth. The difference is that literature that is honest, that does depict all the sins of the human existence and interprets it underneath the authority and standard of God is not pornographic. It's not pornographic because there's a standard of judgment up here. And so that's the point that's made in Hosea. He, he just, this is a, a sin list. They employ violence. This is violence. I mean, we talk about we don't want violence on TV. But if you were to depict dramatically 
what is going on in the prophet's day, you would have to have sex and violence. Because that's what they're talking about. The difference being, however, that it's being interpreted for what it is. It's truth in labeling now. This is violent and it's here and it's destructive and here's why it is. Because men have departed from God himself. Now we come back to Isaiah and if you go to Warren, uh, don't bother reading 5 through 23 or we'll never get through tonight. Um, uh, why don't you read, say, around... Um, Verse 10 through 15, that's a, it's a good middle chunk there. And in Isaiah chapter um, 1, verses 10 through 15. See how blunt this was? Can you imagine how this sounded if you were to, um, you know, just say this in normal language of the street? This is not, not tough stuff here. And you'll notice now we hit the theme of monetary manipulation in Micah. We hit the social evils in Hosea. What area of social life are we seeing in Isaiah right here? Religious. The temple. You see, the prophets were wide-ranging. They took every area of life and could point sin, 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 and sin. And they had a dramatic way of showing this. I mean, just, this is not, oh, this is something very, very obvious in this passage. If you look at verses 10 through 15, what do you notice different than you would if you just saw... Um, it's a violation of law 218.5. This is a violation of law 6185. This is a violation of law 2213. What's the difference between those two, the, looking at it this way and looking at what I just did? What, what is the violation against? In if, the way I was just mimicking, it's against a piece of paper that's written, right? It's just a violation of a law. Just a violation of a rule. See, that's where we've come in our... This is the legal profession has done this one on us. Because they've adopted, not all lawyers, but the, the, the legal profession has basically fallen victim to a pagan view of law. And the outworking of that is that law becomes only what is written or what the judge says it is. The difference, the powerful difference in the Bible in verses 10 through 15 is what? What do you know? What theme takes you away from mere law in verses 10 through 15? What, what, the verbs. Look at the verbs. Who's the object of the verb? It's God. I'm offended. My soul is horrified at this. So what can we say about verses 10 through 15 to distinguish our biblical view of law 
from the pagan lawyer today. The pagan lawyer is basically a technician. He wants to see if we violated this law and how far can we go before we violate this law. It, it becomes a chess game. That's not what you read in the scriptures. In the scripture, you've ticked off God. Never mind the details of the law. That's all there and that's valid because he told you. But the problem is, I'm not dealing with a piece of paper. I'm not dealing with what some judge in an obscure court said 15 years ago in the law books, and this is the precedent that's being applied to the case at stand. Rather, it's a bigger idea. We have angered God, and he's angry at us. Now, that tends to clarify the air, blows all the smoke away, and we get down to the real issue here. What's going on? So, I want you to observe this. This is a biblical trait, and we, we mentioned it earlier, back to a year ago, when we said, what was the difference between the Mosaic Law and Code of Hammurabi? Remember I said, you read the codes of Hammurabi, and you read all the ancient Near Eastern codes, what do you say? If so-and-so does this, then we do this. If so-and-so does this, then we do this. But you come over to the Mosaic Law, I, Jehovah, O Israel, have redeemed you. Here's how I want you to live for me, so we can live together. I can be your God, and you can be my people. It's a world of difference, and we want to become, as Christians, sensitive to this, because this is the difference between walking in the Spirit and walking in the flesh. It's the difference between grace and law in the bad sense. Legalism has a pagan view of law. Legalism is, I have to fit this rule, this rule, this rule, and this rule. Grace says, have I got the picture together here? Who's calling the shots? God is calling the shots, and it's with him that I have to do. And it's him that I'm trying to please. I mean, I, it's just neat. I've often wondered if someone could produce a drama of Jesus walking through the fields on the Sabbath day go, with his disciples going like this to the grains and eating them right on the Sabbath day. And the Pharisees sitting there just like a typical law. Oh, that's a violation of a law. Oh, let's check this one out. Man, this is paragraph 3110 says you can't do that on the Sabbath day. And they're telling him what to do on the Sabbath. Excuse me? He created the world. Who spoke the first Sermon on the Mount? And the lawyers, and this is the arrogance, this is why he had such bad words to say for the Pharisees. And Jesus, we want to see him get hot in the Gospels. He goes after the Pharisees. He doesn't go after the, the prostitute or the crook. He goes after the Pharisees, the lawyers of the time. Why? Because they had the gall to tell him what his own law meant. So we want to understand the tension, because we Christians live in this tension. Because we have a false, false, false view of law today. There's not one person in ten out there that understands what law is all about. Not one. And you don't understand what law is all about until you see it through the eyes of these prophets. These guys had it right. These guys knew what law was all about. Because these guys gave us real law in history. It was the law of Jehovah. Law was not the product of men. It was God's revelation of what pleases him and displeases him. And that's why, notice, he says at the end of verse 15, he gets through all this religion. He spread out your hands in prayer. I'll hide my eyes from you and so forth. I will even, you'll, you multiply your prayers. I'm not going to listen. And then, what's that last clause? 
in verse 15. Why won't he listen? Because you people are violent. You kill people in your hearts, and you kill people in the streets. And you dare to walk into my presence and hold your hands up to me, and there's blood all over them. I mean, this is really, this is indictment. It goes back, what you're seeing is professional in the, in the God, in biblical godly sense. These guys are the prophets. These are the tough guys. And what you're watching is a Spirit of God pound away at this. Divine chastening until conviction of sin happens. That's why these prophets, and I urge you... Um, to change your Bible reading if you've never read the prophets. Just pick out one of these guys with the stuff that we've learned on Thursday nights and look for these themes. And try to pick a modern translation, if you can, that's reasonable, um, uh, just so you can get some of the more contemporary, everyday English. And just feel what these prophets are saying. to the announcement of judgment. Since we're in Isaiah, let's turn to Isaiah chapter 1, verse 24. Because here comes the judgment theme. Now here is the third part of this Reeve proceeding. Remember Moses said, back in the national anthem, he said, okay, covenant's broken, now God lowers the boom. All right, now in, in Isaiah's time, verse 24 um, and uh, Warren, if you just read, um, let's just read verse uh, 24 through 26. Or just 24 and 25. Let's not get to 26. Okay. Now you see, he's, he's saying, I'm going to go get you now. Now, we, we've broken covenant. You've broken. We all agree. You didn't want to live under my reign, so now I don't have to you know, promise to do anything with you. It's really fearsome here. This is the imagery that you get when you hear somebody flippantly say, Oh, I don't like the God of the Old Testament. <laughs> he's really a meanie. Well, he's not a meanie. He was the one who redeemed this nation. The nation turned against him. All we're seeing that makes him look like a meanie is his holiness. This is what holiness looks like when it breaks out. And, and we're behind the eight ball. And when you're on the receiving end of his holiness. All right, let's turn over to Hosea chapter uh, 4. And um, Mike, if you just read um, verse 3. All right, now, in that passage Mike has written, did you hear him when he was reading all about the environment? In other words, when God judges, remember one of the themes we studied last year and the year before, and I said judgment, salvation, and I said it's true in, in the Exodus, and it was true in the Noahic flood. What was the, one of the themes, remember, we studied? When God judges, he doesn't just judge man, he judges nature with man. There's always a duality to God's judgments. It's never man isolated from his ecology. It's man and his ecological environment. Both share. 
You know why that's so? Because what did God say to Adam? Who's responsible for the ecological environment? Man is. And so man and his environment, which represents his domain, is judged. Both man and nature are judged in the scripture, not just man. Okay, let's come over to uh, Micah now. And uh, we're going to ask uh, Larry if he'd look at Micah chapter 9, uh, verses 13. Uh, well, you're not going to get into Micah 9. Uh, must be Micah 7, 13 through 15. Um, yeah. Um, let's uh, um, go to 9 to 13. Yeah. So I've, I've got it script. It should be chapter 7, 9 through, 15, 9 through 13. I don't know where I get 15 in there. That's the section in here. Uh, excuse me, Larry. Um, that, that's the third section that we want to get into later. Uh, I am, I'm sorry, but I've got a problem with that 13 through 16. I wonder if it's, I meant to say, um, I guess it must be 6, 13. Yeah, 6, 13 through 15. That would fit because it's in the same passage. Because in 6, if you turn there, I'll, I'll just go ahead and read that. So also I'll make you sick, striking you down, desolating you because of your sins. That's right. You will eat, but you will not be satisfied. And your violence will be in your midst. You will try to remove for safekeeping, but you will not preserve anything. What you do preserve, I will give to the sword. You will sow, but you will not reap. You will tread the olive, but it will not, you will not anoint yourself with oil. The grapes, but you won't drink wine. So, again, it's the indictment. So I think we, we've made the point that this is a proceeding, which I hope tonight will give um, you, if you're not familiar with the prophets, an idea how these guys worked. This is a great depiction of how the guys worked. Now what we want to do is just mention in passing that the third, there's a third um, theme. But before we get to that third theme, since we won't have time tonight, I want to take you to the notes on page 44 on the top. And I want to take you to a, a passage in the Old Testament in Jeremiah 22. So if you turn to that prophet, we want to look at how far... God did discipline his nation. Scary. If you turn the Bible to Jeremiah 22, and then if you will recall, and if you have trouble recalling, again, on the notes in that table that I handed out tonight, page 47, the Davidic covenant. The terms of the Davidic covenant were that he, the royal line would survive, right? That was promised David. But the problem was, David was a king inside the nation. He was, if, if I'm David and I'm the line, I'm standing in the t palace of the king, I'm sitting in the throne of David, I'm a person who's occupying an office, and the office is the monarchy. And the monarchy, according to Samuel, was contingent, wasn't it? What did Samuel threaten the nation with? First of all, you shouldn't have asked for it the way you did. Now you've got it, you're going to have a problem with it. And if you keep on messing around with God, 
you and your king are going to go out the window. So here we have a tension, again in the prophets, between, uh, between this sovereign promise that the Davidic line is going to survive and the contingency of the monarchy in a sinful nation. Watch what happens here in Jeremiah 22. This precipitated a major problem. Jeremiah 22:24. We're talking here about the king on the southern throne. Why the southern throne? Because that's the throne of David. The northern throne was apostate. Besides, the northern kingdom had gone into a captivity by this point. Now, verse 24, the Holy Spirit, through Jeremiah, makes an announcement that basically shocks the nation like nothing before. As I live, declares the Lord, even though Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring in my right hand, I would pull him off. And I shall give you over into the hand of those who are seeking your life, into the hand of those whom you dread, even to the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, into the hand of the Chaldeans. I will hurl you and your mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you will die. But as for the land which they desire to return, they will not return. Is this man, Kaniah, despised shattered jar, or is he an undesirable vessel? And it goes on and on and on. O land, land, land. Look at verse 29. Jeremiah is a very powerful prophet. O land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, write this man childless, a man who will not prosper in his days, for no, look at this, think of this, in the light of the Davidic covenant, for no man of his descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. Now it looks like he's destroyed the Davidic covenant right here. Because this says that the royal line that was so carefully preserved in that southern kingdom is cut off. No more. This is the end. No more kings in Israel. The next guy that happens to sit on the throne is an uncle. He's not a son. So Kaniah, who is also called Jehoiakim, there's, there's two guys that similar names here. The fellow in verse 24 where you see Jehoiakim, M. Well, Coniah's other name is Jehoiakim N. You can always think of their order because M comes before N in the alphabet. So there's two guys and their names are identical except for the last letter. Jehoiakim and Jehoiakim. So the curse is on the son of Jehoiakim, who is Jehoiakim or Coniah. This is the same name. And God says that that's it. I'm shutting down the monarchy. Now, how can God do that and keep alive his promise to David. That question is never answered in the Old Testament, ever. That is an abiding mystery. It was a, it was a conflict. It was one of those inscrutable paradoxes that Old Testament saints had to live through. In the New Testament, it's answered. Um, if we come to chapter 36 of Jeremiah, I want to show you again as we close the class. Jeremiah 36, verse 30. This is another, lest we misinterpreted the first announcement. Here's the same announcement all over again in all of its boldness. I'm showing you these passages because you want to see how dramatically the Lord took the seriousness of breaking covenant. 
Right now, he is taking his own nation apart, piece by piece, brick by brick. And he's taking out the monarchy. Verse 30. Therefore, saith the Lord, concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, he shall have no one to sit on the throne of David. So he's sitting, but see, his, Kaniah, his son, is not going to. He shall have no one to sit on the throne of David. And his dead body shall be cast out to the heat of the day and the frost of the night. I shall also punish him and his descendants and his servants for their iniquity. And I shall bring on them and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the men of Judah all the calamity I have declared to them, but they did not listen. And Jeremiah took another scroll, gave it to Baruch, the son of Nehemiah, and he wrote on it at the dictation of Jeremiah all the words of the book which Jehoiakim had burned in the fire. See, what had happened was, king didn't like Jeremiah. So you know what his answer was? Threw the scroll in the fire. Don't like the word of God. I'm going to put it in a waste paper basket. Don't like to hear it. Okay. You'll hear it someday. But the point was, this shows you the, the rebellion on the part of the leaders. The leaders were so hardened at this point in their lives that when a prophet from God himself came into their presence, compare this to David. Nathan comes in after David had sinned and David repents within minutes. Now these guys not only don't repent, now they're so angry at God that they burn up the word of God. So God says, okay, we'll take out the throne then. See how you like that one. And thus endeth the throne of David. And so it sets up a tension. Now, how this is, this related, we're not going to cover this year. We're going to cover it next year when we deal with the Lord Jesus Christ. But in the New Testament, this is why, if you read in the Gospel of Matthew, and you look over in the Gospel of Luke, you always have some nitwit professor try this on Christian students in the classroom, They'll say, oh, gee, there are two genealogies in the New Testament. And they're in conflict. And see, there are errors in the Bible. See, students, you stupid little fundamentalist students? And ridicule them. Like one Christian that uh, works on the University of Texas campus, she was working with some girls, and uh, the girls reported the professor started the class with, well, any one of you students out there that believes in uh, biblical Christianity, you can forget it, because by the end of this semester, I'm going to undo your faith. Now, if it had been a homosexual, and he said that, guess what would have happened? So the Christians are the targets of opportunity. You can attack anybody in society. You can't attack anybody in society except the evangelical Christian and get away with it. But the idea here is that in the New Testament, Jesus Christ has to be related to David two ways, or he can't be the Messiah. Jesus Christ has to be related back to David to fulfill prophecy in, in his genes. All right, now, Jesus had no genetic father. So what does that mean? It means somewhere Mary has to carry the genes of David. So Mary's genealogy is in Luke. And she gets tracked back through to David, through another one of David's sons, not Solomon. Joseph, on the other hand, he carries his lineage through the throne side of the Davidic throne all the way back through, and you can trace his genealogy in the New Testament. It doesn't match the one of Luke. The reason is because there's two genealogies. The reason is because there's two parents. 
Jesus has to, at the same time, be a physical son of David, able to sit on the throne. He has to carry the royal authority of David, but he can't be the child of Jehoiakim because he falls under the curse here of Jeremiah 22. So it just goes to show you, you know, it looks like from the, from when you just read Jeremiah that God has really fouled himself up here. But God, as we always say, is the infinitely uh, finesse chess player. He makes a move on the board and it looks like he's aced his own position. And all of a sudden you find out you're the one that got aced, not God. And this is how he did it. He moved here to remove the monarchy and apparently destroyed his promise, and then it comes gloriously true in the person of Christ in a way nobody would ever have dreamed. Who would have thought that Joseph, as a teenage boy, and his girlfriend, each of them carried a genetic line back so intricately interwoven with the Davidic covenant that this young couple was picked out in many, many different ways. It's not just that the angels spoke to him, though he did. It's not just that the shepherds were spoken to in Christmas. It was the fact that from the birth of Joseph as a young boy and Mary as a young girl, they were set up in this elaborate structure of cursings and blessings, down through history, mapped out under the sovereignty of God, so they could be the perfect couple that would bring the Son of God into the world as the Son of David. Amazing story, but we'll get into that next year. Father, we thank you for who you are, that you are the sovereign, omnipotent, amazing God of history. And when we see how we as sinners, we treat you like these people treat you, and when we turn against you, you don't react neutrally, that you are a person. And we're thankful that through the prophet's ministry that we can be reminded that you are indeed a person with feelings and holiness and a sense of being violated when people whom you save and redeem turn against you. And may this perception and this revelation of your character warm our hearts to your holiness and your love through the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. No, apparently it wasn't. And uh, what's, what's amazing about the prophets um, is that they appeared to come from all segments of society. Yeah, the Levites, that was a priesthood issue. And they were limited. The prophets seemed to be called, I mean, um, uh, Amos and those other guys, they felt, in fact, very inferior because um, they, they wondered, why did God call me? I'm, I'm just a businessman or I'm just a lowly person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, and they all did. And, and some of them we would uh, consider somewhat eccentric. Some have a very eccentric personality. Elijah was one who had a, quite an eccentric personality. Ezekiel was another one. So, so some of them were weird people. Um, others were, were high places. Isaiah, if you trace his role, who, I don't know whatever... Um, I don't know the role of his family offhand, but um, 
functionally in society, Isaiah would be like today uh, an advisor to the president. That high. Um, Daniel, uh, who technically you could argue whether he's a prophet or not, but he wrote, he, he, he did prophecy, whether he's a, technically a prophet or not. Um, Daniel was the foreign minister of what the nation of Iraq and Iran, both of those nations. Like was G.K. Sefi, who's a, who was an Iranian here, we always kid about, he always says of his own homeland that uh, they screwed up when they fired Daniel. <laughs> Um, but there's a case where the prophets were very high up in the order. And then there was that prophet, I forgot his name, we saw one night here, remember, uh, who served um, under um, Ahab because he hid the other prophets. Yeah. So you had guys on all levels, from that guy in the street all the way up to the king's court, they could be prophets. And I think this probably bothered people because you never could predict through which channel was the Word of God going to come. He always kept people guessing. The judges in the book of Judges? The, the judges also were people called out with no family background of particular tribal allegiance. But their ministry seemed to be more related to what we would call a political leader. They had charisma as leaders. Some of them were military officers. Um, others were men who were, were just very astute. And some of them were just characters. Because how do you explain, you know, you, we often think of judge as a judge. That's the problem. The word doesn't connote the right thing. Because we think of a judge as somebody in the court with a black coat or something. But, I mean, how would you reconcile the image that you have in your head, and I have in mine, of a judge today with a goon like Samson? I mean, it just doesn't fit. So something's wrong with the way we're looking at the word judge. And I think it's, it's just, these were just charismatic leaders who who were able to get a following. And it's interesting, Deborah is considered to be a judge. And uh, what's her role? Well, she comes, she comes in as a very, uh, very famous Hebrew illustration of women, a woman in charge of a nation. I mean, we see it like Margaret Thatcher today. And uh, the context that you get Deborah's ministry is that she had to do what she had to do because the guy that was supposed to do it didn't. In fact, it's so silly that in the, in the text, when they go into battle, the guy that was supposed to lead the nation says, I'm not going to go into battle unless you come with me. <laughs> so, I mean, things, there was a problem there. <laughs> well, um, anybody have anything else? Yes.
he's referring to those kings who Omri, the Omrides, were the longest dynasty in the northern kingdom. And there were several of them. And in fact, they were so long that in archaeology, there's one authenticated monarchy reign that we have written in inscriptions about the house of Omri. Um, but he's addressing past history. And it, te it dates that passage for you. Because it tells you when that passage was written. So, all these prophets, um, these guys were um, kind of neat. And it's refreshing if you have never read the prophets, just to, to get in there and just mess with them a little bit. Um, and don't try to read them all. Don't try to read the prophetic books from one end to the next, um, unless you're a real dedicated person and you work that way. The better way is just dip in as you feel led and, and try one. Just try one. And if you have a Bible dictionary, a Bible background book at home, read a little bit about the history or get a chart. Um, I just gave Wade a chart out of my Bible that shows you which, um, which prophet worked and which king. And always think in terms of the fact that those guys are rooted in a contemporary political situation. Even, in fact, the prophecy of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ in Isaiah 7, that's related to a thing that happened in the courtroom of the king, in the king's court, I should say, not a courtroom. And it was a contemporary thing that happened. And he was not talking, apparently, he was not talking about way off in the future. He was talking about something that was going on then. But he talked about it in such a way that it was loaded conversation that had fulfillment in the future. It's quite amazing situation there. Um, so next time what we'll do is we'll go, go into why we stopped reading tonight in chapter 32. The, I said we've gone to the two themes of, of the prophets, that Yahweh rules over the pagans, and we've looked at the fact that um, the Davidic covenant is broken. And now we want to see the third theme. And this is a theme that tends to resolve the tension, and this will be the theme that sets up the whole prophetic outlook to the New Testament. And so it, it's going to be the reeve proceeding is followed up to a point when the Sinaitic covenant is broken and then something else happens. And we'll look at that next week.